So many Christians struggle to defend the truth of the Christian worldview. What if there is a podcast dedicated to answering the toughest objection to Christianity? This is the mission of the Daily Apologist podcast. I'm your host, Dean Meadows, and in part two of my interview with famous New Testament historian Mike Lacona, we examine the historical evidence for the resurrection. So now that in our first part we talked about what is history, the challenges of doing history, and how that intertwines with investigating miracles. Let's go ahead and look at the resurrection and its implications. So one of the things that you lay out, one of the things that Dr. Gary Habermas from Liberty lays out, and also Dr. William Lane Craig from Biola University, each of you have... Hold on a second. William Lane Craig is also at HBU. He is at HBU. Okay. Every bit as much as he is at Biola. Okay, sorry. I, I actually did not know that. I did not know that he was there, uh, you know, full-time doing work there too. So that's really cool. Um, so let me go back and, and say that again and, and do it properly <laughs> and give proper credit where proper credit's due. So you yourself, who, who are at Houston Baptist University, Dr. Gary Habermas, who's at Liberty, and Dr. William Lane Craig, who's at HBU and Biola, each of you have written uh, extensively on the resurrection, and each of you lay out what you would call minimal facts. So for the listeners who might be hearing that for the first time, what is a minimal fact, and why in the world are they important? Well, Gary Habermas came up with the term minimal fact, and he did this with his doctoral dissertation a long time ago. And basically what a minimal fact is, and it's kind of morphed in his definition uh, way of doing it over time. So originally it was that um, here are some facts that are granted by a majority of critical scholars today. Um, and so he'd look at these and he'd say, all right, we've got 12 facts that are granted by the majority of scholars. And then he, he'd say, and he said, we can build a very strong case for Jesus' resurrection based on just these 12 facts that are granted by the majority of critical scholars. And then he said, well, let me show you how strong the case is. We can just take any five of these that you want, five of the 12, you pick whichever five you want, and we can build a strong case for the resurrection based on just these minimal facts. That's how it started. So mm -hmm. over the years though, he has morphed that approach and it's like, okay, we're just gonna go with maybe three, four, five facts that are granted by virtually all scholars who study the subject, all, all critical scholars who study the subject. So it's not just a majority, it's virtually all, or a large, very large majority. You know, and those I, are scholars of all stripes, correct? Oh yeah, so we're talking about a heterogeneous consensus. We're talking about conservative evangelicals. We're talking about moderates and liberals. We're talking about agnostics, Jewish historians, atheist historians of Jesus. You, you throw them all together, and there are thousands of them. Um, and, well, maybe not thousands, uh, but you, you throw all those together. There's hundreds of them, perhaps, perhaps around a thousand, maybe. Uh, you put all of them together, and um, this is what virtually all of them agree on, or a, a very large majority, depending on how he does it. 
the way I did it in my doctoral dissertation was I based it on just three facts that mm -hmm. were granted by um, virtually 100% of a heterogeneous consensus of scholars. Okay, so if I'm hearing you correctly, what you're saying is minimal facts are important bec because what they allow us to do when we look at the resurrection is that it doesn't allow us to only go with our, it kind of minimizes our own, our own biases towards the resurrection, and it goes with the consensus of scholars, no matter whether they're religious or not religious. These are the facts that the majority of the scholars agree on. Now, let's connect and see what's the best explanation of those minimal facts. That's right. Okay. That's right. And for and, Gary, it was kind of, it was kind of, um, look, I believe a whole lot more than this stuff. But even if we use just those facts that you grant, Mm -hmm. skeptic that and virtually everyone grants we can get to a strong case for the resurrection and and for the listeners that's a, a a very key point because too often in our conversations with our skeptical friends or even when we engage uh maybe some of the more famous uh atheists on social media too too often what we want to run to is our worldview and argue from our point of view and argue from what we believe What's even better is to say, all right, here are the facts of what the scholars say and kind of answer into um, the person on the other end's worldview and make the case from, from their worldview what they would accept as uh, facts. And these minimal facts serve as that kind of foundational piece to where I can talk to someone on the other end and say, this is what all the scholars say are the minimal facts regarding um, Jesus and his death. And let's talk about it from from that point of view. So, I'm. I think we, as the Christian community, are indebted to guys like you and Gary Habermas and and Dr. Craig for laying that foundation so that we can have better conversations with our skeptical friends on the other end. So now that we've looked at those at, at the importance of minimal facts, let's get into your research. Let's get into um, your study on the resurrection. And what are the the minimal facts, the three minimal facts that you lay out? Well, in my dissertation and, and the book that you, to which you referred that uh, came out after, which is a slightly revised version of it, um, uh, would be number one, Jesus' death by crucifixion. Number two, that shortly after his death, a number of his followers had experiences they were persuaded were appearances of the risen Jesus to them. Um, and number three, a skeptic named Paul had an experience he was convinced was other risen Jesus appearing to him. So those would be the three I, I would go with. And those are accepted by virtually 100% of all scholars studying the, the subject today, okay. uh, including skeptical ones. Now, that would be that. And then I'd say, you know, if you want to go with, I don't know, something like maybe 85%, you could throw in some other things like, some of these experiences uh, uh, were, what, on, on several occasions, groups had these experiences. Groups believed they saw the risen Jesus okay. to them. So, so let's go ahead and, and dive into those, those minimal facts. Let's start with um, the death of Jesus. Now, of the three, it, it would almost seem like no matter who you were, you would establish that 
um, that that Jesus died, um, you know, on the cross at the hands of Pontius Pilate. Now, the supreme skeptic would say, "All right, well, how do we know that that that's true? That he died uh, on the cross at the hands of Pontius Pilate? How do we know that?" Yeah, and I, look, it's reasonable to ask and say, you know, we don't believe these. Uh, let, let me make something clear when we come to minimal facts, however we would do them. Um, we, we don't believe something because the majority of scholars believe it, because scholars and scientists have been wrong on, on different occasions. We believe these things because the evidence so strong for them, are, these facts are very, very strong. And the strength of them is evidenced by the fact that so many, such a high, nearly 100% of heterogeneous consensus of scholars will grant these things because they think the evidence for them is so high. So regardless of their biases, and everyone has their own biases, not just Christians, everyone does, even atheists and Jewish historians and, and skeptics are willing to grant these things despite the fact they're not Christians and may even have an anti-Christian bias. Mm -hmm. So I just want to make that clear. We don't believe these because scholars believe them. We believe them because the, the evidence point. is strong and that's evidenced by the, it's supported by the fact that also um, nearly every scholar, regardless of their background, grants these as facts. Okay, so you ask now for the evidence for Jesus' death by crucifixion. There are several of them. I'll give you a few. So number one, it's reported by early sources. So we have Paul mentioning it. He's very early. Um, we have him mentioning Jesus' death in oral traditions that go back very early, even earlier, and perhaps within just a few years, even perhaps even earlier of the event. In fact, the oral tradition in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 7 you got people like Robert, the late Robert Funk of the Jesus Seminar, who was by no means a practicing Christian, um, was, was very skeptical. And, you know, he thought it went back to within just one, two, three years at most of the crucifixion. Gerrit Ludemann, within just a, a couple of years of Jesus' crucifixion, we have Jesus being proclaimed, or this oral tradition in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 7, but that is formulated within the first few years after Jesus' death. Um, so you've got early sources. It's in the Gospel of Mark, which is our first gospel. That's within just a, a few decades, two, probably two to four decades of Jesus' death that that, that is re reported. Um, we, so we have it, and we have it multiple independent Christian sources. All right. We also have it in unsympathetic non-Christian sources. It's mentioned by Josephus, Tacitus, Lucian, Mara Barsarapi, and they all mention Jesus' execution by the Romans. Some, like um, Josephus and um, Tacit or Josephus and Lucian, mention that it's crucifixion. So it's early. It's in multiple independent sources. It's in recurrent attestation. It's in unsympathetic sources. The chances of surviving crucifixion is very small. Um, without any evidence to the contrary. I mean, if you want to go 
and posit that Jesus survived crucifixion and publish that on the internet, you can go ahead. The only convention you need to write a blog online is you have to be able to breathe. There's voice recognition software, so you don't even have to be able to type, right? Um, but historians have to do more than consider wild possibilities. We have to go with probabilities. So when you say out. when you say these sources are early, um, as far as Marabar, Serapian, Lucian, um, Josephus. What are we talking about? How many, what is considered early sources in history? How far after the event is, would someone say, well, that's a early source as opposed to saying, okay, well, that's now considered a late source. Yeah. I, I don't think that there's any thing out there, any, anyone out there, or at least I'm aware that would say, okay, well, if you get to this amount of years, if it's within this many years, it's early. After that, it's no longer considered early. Um, but I don't think, but let's put it this way. When you talk about something like Caesar's crossing the Rubicon, I think the earliest source we have that mentions that would probably be something like 65 years later. Mm -hmm. Okay. One that would mention it directly. Um, 65 years later. That would be that would be a primary source. That would be an early source. Um, you know, all the all four of our gospels were written within sixty five years. John's the latest, and he's written right at about sixty five years, perhaps even earlier. And and the reason that I asked that, Doctor Clone, I'm sorry to to interrupt, is because oftentimes what we will hear is, well, this source is uh, forty or fifty years after the event of Jesus. That's so old. Um, and so that's why I asked the question, what would someone consider an early source? An early source, even by a secular event like Caesar crossing the Rubicon, being 65 years after um, the event by historians is considered early. And in comparison with the sources that we have for Jesus's death, namely uh, the Gospels, those are right in line with uh, what's your, it seems what you're saying is that's right in line with something like Caesar crossing the Rubicon. Yeah, well, they're earlier than Caesar crossing the Rubicon, yeah. which is great. And let, let's keep in mind that even today, World War II vets are still being interviewed for documentaries to tell us about what it was like back then. It's true. And World War II was over, let's see, I mean, what are we talking? It was over 55, 75 years ago, it was over. 75 years and they're still interviewing eyewitnesses 75 years later right and we wouldn't look at that and say well that's too late we can't trust anything they'd say <laughs> so we're 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 talking ladies and gentlemen about the death of jesus obviously one of the things that comes along with talking about the death is the burial now this is a point of contention by many skeptics um, that I have come across, I'm sure that you have come across them as well, for, for two, re two questions regarding the burial, even though we could dive into a lot more. Um, why isn't it more likely that Jesus, uh, why is it more likely, why isn't it more likely that Jesus was eaten by birds while on the cross or thrown into the mass grave considering Roman practices with regards to that. And second, um, why would we believe that Joseph of Arimathea isn't just a 
made up mythical character. Some people say Arimathea wasn't a real place. How do you answer those two questions? Well, we don't know where Arimathea was. Um, we're, we're not sure. Um, I mean, we've got some ideas perhaps, but we don't know exactly where it was. Neither do we know exactly where Emmaus was. But, you know, that's not unusual for something that long ago. Um, I would look and I'd say, all right, first of all, it's multiply attested. So at least we have Mark and John at minimum that says that speak of Joseph of Arimathea burying Jesus. Multiple independent sources. And I can tell you this, the majority of scholars, although it's a slight majority um, in both cases, the majority of scholars today, critical scholars, do think that Mark and John are rooted in eyewitness testimony. The majority of English-speaking scholars would say that Mark's primary source was the Apostle Peter. Um, and a majority of critical scholars, Johannine scholars, would say that the Gospel of John, even though they would reject that it was written by John the son of Zebedee, they would say that it is root, uh, rooted in the eyewitness testimony of one of Jesus' disciples, that it, the primary source for John's Gospel was one of Jesus' disciples. Gotcha. So that's pretty good. So we have multiple independent sources that way that speak of Joseph of Arimathea. You've got uh, Paul in that early oral tradition in 1 Corinthians 15 that says Jesus died and was buried. And was buried, yeah. yeah so that's very early and goes back probably to the Jerusalem apostles within very close time of the event itself. Um, then I would say in terms of the burial where you're just thrown into a common grave where insects and dogs would, uh, and birds would, can, you know, finish eating the carcass. Um, that was the practice of the Romans throughout the, uh, a majority of their empire. However, when we come to Jesus, you read Josephus in his Jewish war Book 4, Section 317, and he talks about just a few years before the temple was destroyed that the Romans had hired some mercenaries, and they went into Jerusalem, and they killed a bunch of Jews, and it says the Jews were infuriated because these mercenaries would not allow the people they killed to receive a proper burial, and mm -hmm. Josephus goes on to say, for it was the custom of the Jews to remove the crucified and to give them a proper burial before sunset. That is oh, wow. entirely in line with the Gospels, and it's entirely in line with the archaeological evidence we have, namely the ossuaries, of which over a thousand have been discovered in, in Jerusalem. Now, an ossuary is this bone box made of stone that was approximately, approximately two feet long, two feet high, a foot and a half wide, something like that. And uh, what they would do is they would bury someone in a tomb. They would allow that person to decompose for one year. Then they'd go back a year later. They'd collect the bones, put them in the ossuary, and then bury that in a tomb. And like I said, more than a thousand of these have been discovered. Some even of crucified victims, um, even one that had been burned alive. Um, we, <coughs> excuse me, we we find that. So. We can see through the archaeological evidence that the Romans did allow the, the crucified and the condemned to receive a proper burial prior to the fall of Jerusalem. And these ossuaries 
that was a practice from around the year 30 BC up until the, around the year 70 when the temple was destroyed. So we find in archeological evidence, we find Josephus mentioning it. So even though this was a practice by the Romans throughout the majority of their empire, the Romans did allow exceptions for many customs. And we have evidence from archeology, span from Josephus, plus the multiple independent testimony of the gospels that this was an exception in Jerusalem. And, and that was a part of the Roman idea of Pax Romana, that a peaceful Rome is a prosperous Rome. And so certain customs would be, a, be a, allowed for specific groups of people so that they would not rise up against the, uh, the, the empire. And so that's, I find that very interesting um, as far as the archeological evidence and what we find with regards to uh, the practice of the Jews and the custom of the Jews and what the Romans would allow uh, with regards to the condemned and the crucified to be given a proper burial, which, as you said, right in line with what we look at in the Gospels. So it seems that the, the first minimal fact that Jesus died by crucifixion uh, and was given a, a burial um, is, is pretty solid. It, it seems well, the burial like the, is not part of the minimal facts. That, that would be a peripheral fact, right? That would be a peripheral one. Now, uh, yeah. William Lane Craig uses it. Mm-hmm. But I, I wouldn't say he uses a minimal facts approach. But okay. he throws in the burial by Joseph. Okay. And, and that is, I, I, I haven't done a study on whether a majority of scholars accept that, but uh, critical scholars accept that. I don't know. Gary Habermas would know that. Um, but I would say we do have very good evidence, excellent evidence of the burial by Joseph and that Jesus was given a proper burial. You could dispute whether it was honorable, but that he was given a proper burial, all the evidence favors yes. Outstanding. So let's move to the, the second minimal fact. And in your professional experience, whether that's in writing or in public speaking and debating, which, which facts between, um, and I don't want to dive into fact three, I just want your perspective on it. Which fact do you find to be most objected to fact minimal fact number two about the disciples experience or minimal fact three about Paul's experience? Well, um, I don't really find anyone who would object to either of them. I'm saying debated as far as did this actually happen when you're talking and debating on the resurrection? I haven't found anyone I have debated who would call into question either, except perhaps Matt Dillahunty, but he's not a scholar. Dr. Lacona, thank you so much again for that timely and valuable evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. That is all for part two of our series on the historical case for the resurrection. In part three, we'll finish up supplying evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And between part two and part three, don't forget to check out the Daily Apologist blogs and videos at www.thedailyapologist.com. You can also like and follow us on all major social media platforms like Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. On behalf of Dr. Lacona, I am Dean Meadows, the host of the Daily Apologist podcast. Remember, equip yourself to engage culture.